Greetings and welcome to the SLIS Colloquia, a program now in our eighth consecutive semester, brought to you by your School of Library and Information Science here at San Jose State University. I am Dr. Anthony Bernier, and along with Dale David, our technical producer, we are offering this series as part of our school's vision to be recognized as a leader in graduate education in library and information science. Before I introduce today's colloquium, a few announcements. Please look for new colloquia presentations on the SLIS website throughout the term, where you'll also find a webcast archive of all of our previous presentations on the SLIS homepage at slisweb.sjsu.edu. We also offer our colloquia as free podcasts, details on how to access these presentations either through RSS feeds or the iTunes store can be found on the colloquia page. Viewers can also watch the SLIS Colloquia on Blip TV, the popular video sharing website. The SLIS Blip TV channel can be accessed at sjsuslis.blip.tv. For our students, I would like to encourage you to visit a special website dealing, uh, detailing the social networking opportunities the school offers to you uh, to connect virtually and otherwise with other SLIS students. It's our own social networking wiki site. The school also maintains another wiki called Cool Web 2.0 Tools, which offer a way to share and learn about the rapidly changing resources you will want to know about. While these previous announcements were intended primarily for our SLIS students, I also have a few for everyone in the SLIS community. The school maintains a robust profile at our professional associations. So I'd like to call your attention to the school's upcoming professional conference appearances as well. We will be at the Public Library Association Conference in Portland, Oregon between 23 and 27 March. And please join us at our reception on Thursday evening, 25 March at the Marriott City Center. We will also be at the Montana Library Association Conference 7 to 10 April in Bozeman, Montana. Between 2 and 5 June, SLIS will be in Edmonton, Alberta. Special Library Association between uh, 13 and 15 June in New Orleans, Louisiana, and at the annual American Library Association Conference, of course, in Washington, D.C., between 24 and 30 June. Finally, please make plans now to attend two very special mid-May events. The first concerns uh, the evening of Thursday, 13 May, in San Jose at the school, as the school celebrates the retirement of our director, Dr. Ken Haycock. And then two days later, on Saturday, 15 May, we celebrate the commencement of our current 2010 graduates. Find all of the details and RSVPs on our SLIS's homepage. The faculty hope to see you at these professional conferences and that you take the opportunity to become acquainted with us and as well as meet up with classmates and friends and colleagues. We hope you enjoy the colloquia presentations and thank you for helping to make this series such a success. I first heard Eric Goldman as a live guest on National Public Radio. Uh, it was an affiliate local into the Bay Area. He was being interviewed for his research and expertise on Internet use and Wikipedia. Dr. Goldman is an associate professor of law and director of the High Tech Law Institute at Santa Clara University School of Law 
at Santa Clara University. Before he became a full-time academic in 2002, he practiced internet law for eight years in the Silicon Valley, including a stint as general counsel for ePinions.com. His research and teaching focus on internet, intellectual property, and marketing law topics. He blogs on those topics at Technology and Marketing Law Blog. The title of his presentation today is Regulating Reputation Systems. So please join me and the rest of the SLIS faculty in welcoming to campus Dr. Eric Goldman. I'm really grateful to be here. Uh, this event has actually been a year plus in the making, and uh, Dr. Bernier's persistence in uh, chasing me down has been helpful to get here. But today's actually a family celebration in a lot of ways. Um, in the interim, while we've been negotiating my talk here, uh, my sister has been appointed the director of uh, the school, and she's here in the audience today. Um, so I've decided to ditch my talk, and instead I'm going to do a little bit of a family roast. So when Dr. Hirsch was 13, she said the, so um, maybe we'll suspend that for a later time. Um, but uh, actually, I'm really delighted to be here um, to talk about uh, some work I've been working on for the last couple of years. And we'll it's a project that will continue to work um, for another few years. This is an ongoing effort on my part. Um, to explore the ways that we regulate what I call reputational information, and I'll define those terms and so on in a moment. Um, but uh, this is a mixture of a legal talk in the sense that we need to understand the law and its application to content flowing in our ecosystem, uh, but it's also an information science talk at its core. It's about how people make decisions using information and the ways that the law can help or hinder that process. Um, this research actually de uh, derives from my experiences um, as general counsel of the opinions, which is why um, I'm glad it was mentioned in part of my bio. Um, for those of you who are familiar with the opinions, the site was designed to be a platform for the um, communication of user opinions about goods or services in the marketplace. Um, the opinions built a taxonomy of goods and services that were available, and then uh, users come and populate it with their subjective content, their opinions about whether this was a good or bad product. Um, and uh, I left the uh, employee of opinions in 2002, but I've been wrestling with the concepts that we were working on there ever since. So this project's been, in that sense, eight years in the making, and I'm still not done yet. Um, what we're going to do, let me outline uh, the agenda for uh, our time together. Um, I'm going to define my terms, talk to you a little bit about what I mean by reputational information and reputation systems. Um, I'll give you some examples uh, that we see in the field, and we can uh, see some differences and uh, interesting um, uh, facets of them. Um, I'll talk a little about the law of reputation systems and the way in which the law has come in and governed uh, the, the content. And then I'll offer up some lessons that I've learned. These are, uh, I think, the real punchline. Um, and uh, where I'm sending most of my team thinking, so what does all this mean? Um, if you have thoughts or questions, I welcome them uh, now. I'm happy to ha have them, um, or we'll save some time at the end, too, as well. Uh, okay, let me define my terms. Let's talk about reputation and why it matters. Um, so I'm interested in this thing called reputational information, and I'm going to define it as information about an actor's past performance that helps predict the actor's future ability to perform or to satisfy preferences. If you think about this in the marketplace, you're presented with a set of marketplace options, and you try to decide which are the ones that are going to help me satisfy my preferences. 
Um, and in order to do that, typically we try to look at past information. We try to look at, has this been a good producer in the marketplace historically? Or how my friends had experiences with this that I can draw observations from? So if you think about it, for those of you familiar with Bayes' theorem, this is basically a Bayesian type of approach. We say we have this data set of information from the past, and then it'll give us some, some, some guidelines about what might happen in the future. So I'm interested in that particular type of information. There are other meanings of the term reputation, and I want to put those aside for a moment. Some of the things I talk about will be relevant to them, but a lot of times people talk about reputation in what I call the gossip and shaming sense. They're interested in, people talk about reputation about, is this person doing something good or bad in school? Or is this person doing something good or bad in their interpersonal dynamics? Some of what we talk about might be relevant to that, but I'm, I want to put all that aside. I'm really much more interested in the way that the marketplace operates in allocating goods and services and how reputation and information is a part of that. Um, if we focus on the marketplace and we think about make, people making uh, purchasing or other types of uh, uh, marketplace decisions, um, it's my argument to you that reputational information is actually the lifeblood of the marketplace. It's an essential part of the marketplace um, proper f um, functioning. So if you think about it, what we have is uh, what, what uh, the classical economists refer to as the invisible hand. We have this uh, set of individual uh, decisions that are made by individual actors about what their preferences are, how much they value goods and services, and when it all shakes out, when all those aggregate decisions are put together, goods are allocated to the people who value them the most. People say, I'm willing to pay this, other people want to pay more or less, and the combination of people's willingness to pay all adds up into a set of demand that then suppliers can cater to. Um, in order for people to decide whether or not goods or services are going to satisfy their preferences, they have to know some information about those goods and services. And that's the thing that I'm interested in, this reputational information. And so when I describe reputational information as the invisible hand of the invisible hand. So we've got this invisible hand sweeping through our marketplace, allocating goods and services to people who value them the most. But in order for people to make appropriate assessments of value, they need this reputational information. So what the reputational information does in a sense is it guides the invisible hand. It pushes the invisible hand towards the good producers and away from the bad producers in order to help this allocation uh, in the marketplace. What this also means, then, is if we've got problems with our reputational information, if there's something wrong with the flow of information, it distorts the invisible hand. It pushes the invisible hand in the wrong direction. So we're not only interested in making sure that we have good reputational information, but we're interested in any way that we might be distorting it. Now, um, inf reputational information gets published by by, uh, by people, right? It doesn't just exist uh, on its own initiative. People gather and publish this information. I'm going to divide the publishers into two categories or two types of um, people who are uh, publishers of this. And I basically will characterize them as reputation systems. These are ways in which reputational information flows in our ecosystem. And I would divide them into two categories. First, there's what I call unmediated reputation systems. These are when people communicate this reputational information, information about a person's past performance that helps predict their future behavior, um, directly to the consumer of that information. The classic example is word of mouth. You know, we do this all the time. We don't even really think about this as some kind of big, grand design of the invisible hand working properly. But we're over the water cooler, and we say, how was your weekend? I went to a movie. What movie did you see? I saw the latest hot blockbuster. What did you think of it? 
And that conversation is actually a transmission of reputational information. People are saying, here's some information about uh, whether or not this product might be useful to you. You can then decide if it's going to um, uh, be, uh, uh, how it will affect your purchasing decision. Uh, this kind of word of mouth we take for granted. It's ubiquitous. It's an integral part of our ecosystem. Um, there are other examples of this, and one that was more personal to us in the jobs that we have is something like job references or recommendation letters. A student comes to us as a professor and says, um, could you write me a letter of recommendation for a job or for some further uh, uh, educational system? What we're really doing at that point is we're writing up some reputational information and sending it to a recipient who's then going to make a decision about that individual. In the um, employment market, and you'll see why I'm so focused on the employment market um, shortly, um, we have uh, the job references, right, where people will say, I'm interested in hiring this person. What do you think of them? You had job references, didn't you, Sandy? Um, they were part of the hiring decision here. You guys have first-hand experience with it. Um, I'm going to put those into one category. Um, we have another category, what I'll call mediated reputation systems. These are where someone's in the business of aggregating up third-party reputational information, packaging it, and then publishing it down to their consumer. Um, we also rely upon this extensively, and we don't even think about it as well. Let me give you some examples of mediated reputation systems. Um, there's things like credit scores. As you may know, there's large credit reporting databases that collect up your past behavior as a borrower or consumer of credit and then puts that together in a set of uh, reports about whether you're likely to be a good credit risk. So there'll be a credit report that says, here's the history of this person in the past and their uh, economic transactions. Um, that might even get distilled down into a credit score, which is a numerical assessment about the propensity of a person to be likely to pay back their credit. The same phenomenon happens in something like bond ratings or stock ratings. The idea is, again, you look and say, how has this asset performed over time? How is it likely to perform in the future? The one I'm going to focus on a lot is consumer reviews. Um, and there's lots of different ways that consumer reviews go beyond just being unmediated word of mouth to actually becoming a mediate, part of a mediated reputation system. So, for example, there's the Better Business Bureau. I don't know how many people actually still use the Better Business Bureau, but the idea is that you can uh, go to the Better Business Bureau and say, I'm thinking about transacting with this vendor in the marketplace. Are they an upstanding business? And there's going to be a set of reports that people follow the Better Business Bureau saying, this person not upstanding, and so you can get from the Better Business Bureau a published report whether or not to trust that person. Um, but we're seeing the most of the activity in my world online, and this is really, I think, where the action is. And we're seeing the, the, the explosion of online mediated reputation systems or online consumer review websites. Let's take a look at some of the ones that um, I'm tracking. Um, some of these are intimately familiar. I already mentioned opinions as a place where we built a taxonomy and users came in and populated with their uh, opinions about goods and services in the marketplace. The same kind of thing happens at Amazon. Is there anyone in the room here today who has not read an Amazon review as part of making a transaction? We just rely upon it, right? It's an integral part of our shopping experience today. Um, eBay is a little bit different. Um, eBay, uh, which now owns opinions, by the way, so they're actually not really different that way. Um, but eBay um, has the feedback forum. So if you want to transact with an unknown vendor or if you want to sell to an unknown buyer on eBay, you can assess their uh, past experiences with eBay that all gets rolled up into a feedback score and a report of their feedback. Um, has anyone in the room not made an eBay transaction? In the process of making an eBay transaction, has anyone not consulted feedback form? 
that feedback from? Again, an integral part of our transactional experience nowadays, we are relying upon this information, but the, the eBay is a little bit different as a review site because now we're reviewing vendors in the marketplace as opposed to the goods and services that they sell. Um, there are other types of ways to review vendors. Um, there's Yelp, which reviews local businesses. There's Angie's List, which does about the same thing. Angie's List is different because they actually charge for access to their database. You have to be a subscriber to Angie's List in order to get access to uh, the reviews. Um, some of you may be familiar with a ripoff report. Um, its name gives a clue about what it does. It's not interested in talking about the good businesses out there. It's interested in trying to aggregate reviews of the alleged uh, ripoffs. Um, ripoff report is special, um, and a lot of the litigation that I'm seeing in my field actually is being uh, attributed to ripoff report, mostly them getting sued by vendors unhappy with the negative information about them. Um, ripoff report has a policy that says we will not remove content. Once a user supplies that review to us, we don't take it down. Now, here's the, the punchline. They won't take it down even if the author who submitted the review says, I would like you to take that down. They leave it up under all circumstances, and their theory being that the vendor will lean on the author to get the author to ask Gripoff Report to take it down. So they say, once you post it, it stays up. We're not taking it down. Obviously, that uh, creates some friction with vendors who are really unhappy with reports, especially when they get the author saying, I don't actually stand behind those words anymore. So both the author and the vendor are asking about report, take it down, they say no. Um, so it's a little bit unusual as a business, and uh, we'll come back to uh, the ways that we might think about that from a regulatory standpoint. Um, some of you may not be familiar with SiteJabber, their uh, review site for um, uh, online uh, uh, vendors, uh, online retailers. Um, we have industry verticals. We have TripAdvisor for travel reviews. Uh, we have RealSelf, another one you're probably not familiar with. They actually have co cosmetic surgery procedure reviews. So this is actually very useful if you're thinking, I want to get something like a facelift. There are actually multiple options. And where do you find reliable information about facelifts? Well, you can talk to your doctor, of course, but many doctors now have allegiances with one or more businesses um, uh, or one or more procedures. And uh, then you can actually talk to consumers of those services who can say, here's what my actual experience was. Very hard information to get any other way. This is not something that usually gets discussed over the water cooler. And so real self has created a marketplace where people can actually talk to each other about it. Some of you may be familiar with Glassdoor. This is reviews of employers as employers, whether this is a good place to work or not. Did you check Glassdoor before you signed up here? Um, uh, we should check that uh, before we uh, ink the paper. Um, we have um, ratings of various professionals. Um, so we have AVO, which is ratings of lawyers. We have RateMDs, which is ratings of doctors. Um, we have RateMyProfessors.com. Has anyone in the room checked whether you're on RateMyProfessors? Is anyone happy with how they are discussed on RateMyProfessors? Uh, <laughs> um, I will tell you, uh, I am not listed on RateMyProfessors.com. I don't know. Somehow I've fallen through the cracks, and I am not complaining about that. Um, some of you may have heard about Unvarnished. It got a lot of press a month or two ago. Unvarnished actually it says, let's dispense with all the pleasantries. Let's just allow coworkers to review each other. Let's just go for the gusto here. Um, as you can imagine, uh, people have been a little bit nervous about that. Um, gotten a lot of press because it really lays bare. Well, are we really ready to embrace this notion of reputational information flowing in our marketplace, making uh, goods and services when we as coworkers can review each other. 
Um, and then there's all other types of personal services or personal relationships that are now subject to consumer reviews. Um, DontDateHimGirl.com. As you can see, the tagline is, Don't date him, girl, until you check him out first. Now, I don't have the right inflection to say, Don't date him, girl, but you can imagine there's an inflection with, that would be an appropriate thing to say. And what you could basically do is say, I want to know if this person is a player. Um, and they'll give you reviews of whether this person's actually a true, uh, you know, in it for true love or in it for the quick score. Uh, player block is the same type of uh, thing. Uh, there it's actually done by cell phone number. So, you know, you're in a bar, guy gives you the cell phone number, says, hey, let's hook up later. You could put it in the cell phone number and say, is this guy a player or not? And if he is, you can block him. Um, and then you know, there truly is nothing that isn't eligible for reviews. There's PunterNet and the Erotic Review, reviews of prostitutes. So there's every marketplace is now subject to consumer reviews. Um, let's talk about how the law overlays on this flow of reputational information. Um, and I, I really could spend hours, days, talking about the different laws that apply, but I'm going to try and distill it down into just a few. Um, so uh, we have uh, uh, defamation and privacy. So the starting point, defamation, many of you are probably familiar with it. If you publish an untrue fact about another person that is injurious to the reputation, that will qualify as defamation. And so this is one of the main checks on the flow of reputational information because many times people, when communicate reputational information, communicate facts. And when they communicate those facts, they might not have them correct. And the combination of those two things could lead to a cause of action. Um, privacy can also come up, and some of the things that we discussed here, privacy would be very germane, where people have privacy rights, and there can be things like revealing uh, something that is, in, uh, is a true fact, but it's an unknown fact, or not publicly known, and we might say in certain circumstances, converting that from a private fact to a public fact would be actionable, when it's truly egregious, when it's not something that uh, we think is appropriate. Um, so there's some limits on uh, the publication of information, particularly factual information, by defamation privacy. But then there are also limits on those limits. So, for example, we have the First Amendment. The First Amendment says, um, for example, uh, uh, depending on how you want to characterize it, uh, that if it's a matter of public concern, if there's some kind of uh, public value to the publication of this information, we might be more tolerant of erroneous facts. We might give some extra credit to the potential defendant saying, though they got the facts wrong, we're still going to protect them as a matter of First Amendment. We also say that opinions are not regula regulable under defamation. We can get that under the First Amendment or otherwise. The point is that if I say, I really enjoyed this particular service, it's really hard for that to be actual because it's not really a statement of fact. It's a statement of my own subjective impressions. And so we have some limits on defamation that dividing between facts and opinions. We have some limits on dividing between facts that are very private in nature and facts that have some kind of social value that we want to encourage. We also put limits on defamation and privacy actions through what's called anti-slap laws. California is one of the most robust. They are present in uh, over a majority of states today. And a SLAP is a, an acronym for Strategic Lawsuits Against Public Participation. The idea is that uh, some academics uh, were taking a look at what was going on in our content ecosystem and said some lawsuits that we're seeing are really designed to squelch that person's participation in, in public discourse. They aren't really about protecting uh, reputational interests or otherwise. They're just about trying to, to get that person to hush up. And so laws were passed that says if you're, the point of suing somebody for publishing information is to try and discourage them from participating in public activities, we might say that that's actually a problem. And these anti-slap laws then give a bunch of extra remedies to the defendant in, in, a, in, a, in a slap. They allow the defendant in the slap to say, 
I'm going to end the lawsuit early as opposed to letting it drag on through its uh, normal process. And second is that the defendant can get the plaintiff to pay its attorney's fees. So it's actually a financial payoff that discourages plaintiffs from trying to suppress these types of public uh, participation actions as well as giving uh, the, the defendant the, base, the ability to get financially whole. Um, as I said, here in California, we have a very broad conception of what qualifies as a slap and therefore is protected by anti-slap laws. Basically, anything that is uh, socially a part of uh, a public discourse will be protected. That could include even things like consumer reviews. Other states have a much more narrow definition of slaps. Basically, when the lawsuit is designed to prevent people from redressing government wrongs. Um, and so in those cases, the slap laws are a little bit less valuable. Um, we have one other way that we limit defamation and privacy actions, and you'll see this is critical to the rest of the talk. Uh, 47 U.S.C. 230. Now, normally when I say that, I kind of get a laugh from people, like, you expect me to know what that means? And some of you may actually know this, although you wouldn't necessarily know it by a statutory reference. This is a law that was enacted in 1996 by Congress as part of the Communications Decency Act. Communications Decency Act had a number of provisions, but this provision basically said, as distilling it down as best as a lawyer can do, saying that websites aren't liable for third-party content. So what it says is that if a website allows people to provide a third-party content and then it publishes that third-party information, the website's not liable for that information. Now, the person who supplied the information to the website is still liable for the defamation and privacy violations that might be in there. But the website that's publishing it is not liable. And we run into a lot of head-scratching about this. We say, well, that can't be right. There has to be some limits to that. And there are a few, but they're not really germane to our, my point here. This is a very categorical decision on the part of Congress to say, when we have websites that are aggregating third-party content, we want them to feel comfortable to publish that information if they find it valuable without fear of liability, period. So 47 U.S.C. 230 is a very unusual provision because it's counterintuitive. It says people can publish information without liability, and it's, it's an exceptionalist law. It only applies to the Internet. There's no equivalent statute for offline publications. So it's a privilege that Congress granted to the Internet uh, publishers back in the 1990s to say you can freely publish third-party information, and as you'll see, it becomes central to the way that we think about how our information ecosystem is developing. Um, Okay, uh, there's a few statutory limits to 47 U.S.C. 230 that's part of the Communications Decency Act. The one that I will reference is that it does not protect against intellectual property claims. So if a third party provides intellectual property that is violative of some third party rights uh, to a website and the website publishes that, it's covered by the rules, and I'll get to those in a moment. Um, let me also talk about some other ways that um, uh, plaintiffs have been trying to curtail the flow of reputational information. Um, these are what I call the soft torts. And, you know, get another term you probably never heard. This one is unique to me. Um, these are torts that um, plaintiffs allege against defendants all the time because they're so generic and so um, uh, ill-formed that they never clearly wrong. So things like unfair competition. There are various ways that states say that people can engage in, in, engage in unfair competition. We don't really understand the boundaries between what's fair and unfair competition. So it's never clearly wrong to say that someone's engaged in unfair competition. You actually have to work hard to disprove um, the, uh, the unfairness of the allegation. Um, or we have something like a tortious interference, where someone tries to interfere with a business relationship between two parties. That business relationship could be existing or it could be a prospective one. And you can easily allege, this person was trying to muck with my business, and therefore they were scaring away my customers, and that should qualify as a, a tortious interference. 
Um, we've seen these allegations of these types of complaints in some of the recent lawsuits against Yelp. I don't know if you guys have heard about this. Yelp actually has drawn lots of lawsuits in the last uh, couple of months. Um, and basically, they're from businesses that say, we don't like the way Yelp operates. We don't like the way that they sort and order the consumer reviews that are provided to them. They're not suing about the reviews per se. They're suing about the way that Yelp sorts and orders. Um, and the way that Yelp allegedly does a pay-for-play system, saying, if you want to have a better ordering business, We've got a special deal for you. You can reorder it. Uh, we'll do some reordering favoritism for payment. Um, and so the businesses have alleged that that type of system of categorizing and organizing information fits into these soft torts. They're not clearly wrong. The lessons are clearly wrong. We don't know if they're clearly right. My guess is that they aren't. Um, but they certainly act as a limit on reputational information. If, in fact, someone engages in, for example, a pay-to-play system, that might very well trigger one of these types of soft torts. Um, and then we have the IP laws. And there's all different types of ways that IP laws overlay on the flow of reputational information. One example is trade secret. Um, trade secrets are information that businesses keep secret because it drives value for them. You could imagine on a site like Glassdoor, someone would say, I really don't enjoy my job here because, and then start talking about something that might be a trade secret. They might say, because I'm working on this secret formula, and here's the formula, and this is why I'm unhappy about that. Something like that might be a trade secret misappropriation. This may or may not be preempted by 4070-230 if published online. Um, so we might have trade secrets pulling down um, uh, reputational information from the marketplace. We've seen people try to use trademark laws to pull down information. So um, uh, in order to discuss a vendor in the marketplace, you have to use their brand names, right? It's kind of hard to talk about a, a, a vendor without talking about the names that they've chosen for themselves. But the brand owners then say, because you're talking about my name, you're violating my trademark rights, which are the legal protection for brands. We saw this in a suit um, uh, that I was tangentially involved in, the Lifestyle Lift versus Real Self. Lifestyle Lift is a type of facelift procedure, and they were getting just drilled on a Real Self. Remember I told you the site that allows people to talk about cosmetic uh, surgery procedures. And so Lifestyle Lift sued them, and Lifestyle Lift knew that it couldn't sue for the actual bad reviews. That would be preempted by 4070 to C230. But they thought, well, why don't we sue them for trademark law? That's not covered by 230. And they're talking about our brand. And not only are they talking about our brand, but they're making money from it. They have a bunch of ads on the site that causes them to make more money because um, they're discussing our brand. Um, that lawsuit settled, uh, so we don't know that the, laws, uh, that the lawsuit is clearly wrong. In my opinion, it's an abuse of trademark law to try and remove discussions about brands um, that are otherwise editorially valuable simply because you don't like what they're saying. That's not what trademark law was designed to do, and in fact, I would like to think no law was designed to allow that content to come down. Um, but again, these are the types of things where these types of lawsuits are not clearly wrong and people assert trademark law to try and pull back content that they don't like, saying you're discussing my brand and I'm unhappy about it. Let me talk about um, how copyright law is overlaid on top of this. This is a really interesting one. So doctors are very unhappy about being reviewed online. Um, and they have a partial point. A doctor cannot rebut a consumer review in many circumstances where the patient says, I got bad treatment, the doctor can't say, actually, the patient is, is misremembering. I advise them to do the following. That latter response would be impermissible under the physician-patient privilege. So doctors feel like they're handcuffed in responding to negative reviews by consumers um, because they can't tell the full story from their perspective. So what they've done um, is an organization called Medical Justice has gone to doctors and they've said, we've got a deal for you. 
have your patient sign a form that says that the patients will not write any reviews about you. And should they breach that restriction, they assign the copyright in the reviews that they write to you, the doctor. Let me tell you what this does. So, doctor is unhappy about the review, thinks that it's wrong. It goes to the website and says, you're publishing bad reviews. The website says, buzz off, 47 USC 230. I'm not responsible for that. Doctor then says, well, I'm not going to complain about the review as such. I'm going to complain about the copyright infringement. You are publishing my copyrighted work because you are publishing this review that I proactively took a copyright in. And so I'm going to send you a copyright notice uh, to take down the content, which is not covered by 47 U.S.C. 230, covered under a different statute Congress enacted in 1998 that basically says, websites, if you're you're told about copyright infringement, you'll be liable unless you act expeditiously in response to these notices. So the notice comes in. The website says, I'm getting a complaint about copyright infringement. Congress told me in 1998 that I need to take it down or I might be liable, so I'm going to take it down. What the medical justice system does is to hack on the system. This is a way for doctors to remove negative reviews that they don't like by arguing that those reviews violate their copyright in the reviews that have not yet been created. Um, I believe the scheme is illegal. The reason why I believe the scheme is legal is that um, there was actually a don't review me policy in a software vendor uh, uh, um, end user license agreement and the state of New York cracked down on that and says you're not allowed to talk, tell your customers they can't talk about you. That's not permissible. I believe this type of system would be applicable here. But you can see how creative people are getting to try to control the flow of information about them online. They're trying to resort to these types of artifices in order to get back control that has been taken away from them via 230. Um, I'll mention one more IP law. This is a law probably many of you have not dealt with. This is the hot news doctrine. This is a way, uh, this is doctrine protects factual information that's not eligible for copyright law treatment, but nevertheless is valuable because of its time sensitivity. Things that might qualify for the hot news protection include things like um, stock quotes, sports scores, weather information. These are things where the information value degrades really quickly. It doesn't help you to know what, so much to know what the weather was four days ago. You really want to know what the weather is right now. Um, and in this case, uh, the fly on the wall. Uh, the fly on the wall was going around and gathering up um, stock uh, brokerage houses analyst reports. You know, and so what happens is the brokerage houses rate stocks and they say, this stock is a buy. You should go buy it. And they were giving that information to their preferred customers, people who were paying them um, uh, by actually transacting with the brokerage house. Um, and the fly on the wall, through a variety of sources, would get that information about the same time that the brokerage house's customers were getting them. And then they were going and publishing that information to everyone else so that the brokerage house's customers weren't getting that time preference of this recommendation that the, the stock is a buy or not a buy. Um, everyone was getting that information who was subscribing to the fly on the wall. And so the, the brokerage houses were able to shut down the fly on the wall's publication, this hot news recommendation, this tip, whether this is a good company to buy or not, uh, for a period of time based on the hot news doctrine. They didn't say that the fly on the wall could never publish it. They said they had to time delay it. They had to wait a few hours before they could publish it. Um, And then the last type of reputational information regulation I'm going to mention is system-specific laws. Um, So there's all kinds of reputational systems out there in our ecosystem, and we regulate some of them just on an ad hoc basis. So, for example, many of you are familiar with the Fair Credit Reporting Act. Uh, Has anyone in the room actually read the Fair Credit Reporting Act? 
Why would you do that? Work. Work. <laughs> Someone paid you to read that. And did you, did you enjoy that? Uh, no. The reason why you didn't enjoy it is because um, it's 88 pages of dense legalese. The way that you can think about it is that it's Congress thinking, let's put in place a series of laws to govern how a database should operate. Now, you should immediately say some things. Not Congress's forte. And databases evolve over time, and they do lots of different things. And so Congress is constantly iteratively having to go back and say, well, we see that there's a new problem with our database. Let's go fix it. Um, so what Congress did with the Fair Credit Reporting Act, from my perspective, is basically take command and control a top-down style of regulation of the credit reporting databases. You can imagine there could be some benefits from that, but there can also be a lot of downsides to that. It's taken a base out of the hands of the marketplace to decide how to manage uh, that, um, uh, that database and put it in the hands of Congress. Okay. Um, I'm going to give a case study in just a moment. Uh, let me just take a quick break here. Uh, does anyone have any questions about what I've covered so far that we want to tackle now? Yeah, let's, take, let's see what's on your mind. If you would mind commenting on the um, place of anonymity in reviews and how one protects one's uh, reputation when the reviews are anonymous. So um, anonymity is integrally linked to this discussion. Um, and I, I'm going to get to that as one of my recommendations at the end, but let me just touch on it now. Um, that uh, there's a persistent fear, and I think perhaps not completely unjustified, that anonymous reviews are more extreme than attributed reviews. That people say things in anonymous reviews that they wouldn't feel comfortable saying in attributed reviews. That can cut either way. It can cut in the bad way because people can say really nasty things. And those who are familiar with some of the sites that are catering to teenagers for gossip, those sites are out of control uh, in many cases because people are anonymously smearing their, their friends um, in ways that it's impossible to really redress. However, anonymity is also crucial on the flip side in empowering people to say things that they wouldn't feel comfortable saying because they would be fear, fear of the retribution that might attach them. So, for example, when we think about whistleblowing, if someone wants to say, this is a hazardous workspace and I want to see that fixed, People are very fearful about sharing their information because they know what's going to happen. They're going to get fired. Now, we have whistleblower laws that said you can't get fired. Still, there's no way to really avoid the negative social repercussions of someone saying, you ratted us out. You caused us harm as a business. Um, and anonymity then can be crucial to dislodging that information and getting it into the flow um, where it wouldn't be published if it had to be attributed. Um, so anonymity cuts both directions. And one of the questions that we have to think about is how do we deal with that? Do we deal with that from a regular stand story standpoint um, in the sense that we have to regulate when you can be anonymous or not? Or can we deal with it other ways? And I'm going to argue to the end that actually that's a marketplace a solution, uh, a problem that the marketplace can solve. That when we have third-party publishers who are publishing content, they actually have incentives to figure out where to draw the line in anonymous content. And so if we trust the intermediaries, they'll actually solve that problem better than regulations can. So that's a short preview of where I'm going to end up. Wasn't there some uh, legal concern a year or so ago on uh, Yelp, I believe, that one vendor believed that most of the negative reviews were actually be written anonymously by competitors? Um, well, so there's different ways that competitors can game the system. One of them is by posting anonymous content. And others, they can put, post pseudonymous content. It's actually not anonymous, but they created a fictional alias, and then they have it attributed to that. Um, and there is no doubt that competitive 
fake reviews are part of our ecosystem. We come back again to how do we best solve that problem. So going back to Lifestyle Lift um, uh, versus Real Self case, Lifestyle Lift said that the negative reviews of its surgical procedures were posted by competitors. However, it turned out that Real Self then countersued Lifestyle Lift saying, you actually have been posting fake reviews, both positive of you and negative of your competitors. So it appears like everyone's tarred with the same brush here. Um, once again, I come back to the same question with anonymity. How do we best fix that? Can we fix that from a regulatory standpoint, or will the marketplace fix that? And I want you to keep an open mind about that. The answer isn't entirely clear that one is better than the other, but I think that creates some opportunities for us. Um, okay, let's take a look at a case study here. Um, I have a tale of two reputation systems. Um, let me talk about reputation system number one, job references. Prospective employer calls former employer and says, hey, will you talk about this uh, employee? Um, the former employer faces liability for what they say at that point. They face liability if they say something negative. If they say something negative, that could become defamation. In California, there's actually been a case that says if the former employer sets a positive reference, but that reference is incomplete, they might be liable to the prospective employer for having given them bum information as well. The example in that case was where it was a brokerage house, the broker's license had been suspended, the broker tries to go to a new employer, new employer calls a former employer and says, any reason why we shouldn't hire the guy? They're like, no, he's a great guy. It's like, did you fail to mention that he actually couldn't be employed as a broker because he lost his license? That would have been germane to the hiring decision. Um, and so the former employer then faces liability for giving the positive reference, but it was incomplete in the sense they omitted something that really ought to have been communicated. Um, okay, let me, I'm sorry, let me just go back. When you're faced with a damned if you do, damned if you don't, you know what the general response is, right? You know, you hush up. You don't want to say anything. I don't want to talk, right? So um, states have recognized that, and there's a bunch of state statutes that have tried to immunize good faith references. If you, you communicate your reference in good faith, then even if you end up being wrong, however it was, you're still not liable. The courts have basically read this out of existence. They say good faith is equivalent to July or not. And so it, you know, it actually has done nothing to move the ball forward. And so despite these uh, statutes that have immunized them, the job reference market has basically collapsed. It is almost impossible to get reliable, credible information on the job reference uh, market uh, and job references. And in fact, in most cases, um, if you call uh, an employer that's got an in-house legal department, they will say, we're not going to tell you anything. We will tell you if that when that, the dates that person worked, their title, and we'll tell you if they're eligible for rehire. That's all we will communicate. Everything else we're not going to communicate, period. They just hush up. And what that's done is it's pushed employers' interest in trying to learn about prospective employees to other sources. So, for example, now you may know that there's a trend to take a look at credit reports as uh, in the, in the um, uh, employment process, where the employer says to the employee, um, I'd like to see your credit report. That information is not really germane to whether or not the person's going to be a good employee. But it's the best information that the employer can get because they can't get job references. They say, let me learn something about your past history. If you're you know, consistently stiffing your vendors, maybe that's a bad sign. But it's not really relevant. It's actually um, uh, just a proxy for what the employers want to know that they can't get because the references market has collapsed. Um, 
a University of Chicago law professor, Lior Strahalevitz, has written a very um, nice article called Reputation Nation, where he argues that because we suppress the flow of information like job reference information, um, employers, or in, in his example, it's principally landlords, will use race as a proxy or sex as a proxy for prospective uh, uh, performance. Um, we know that's illegal. They're not supposed to do that. But because they can't get the information they want, they use these proxies and they start making categorical decisions that are actually not likely to be better. And in fact, we don't want people to make those categorical uh, decisions, but that's all the information they can rely upon. Um, let's contrast the way job references have worked with online consumer um, uh, re uh, product reviews. Um, so the reviewers who publish uh, these reviews fetch defamation liability. If they make an untrue factual statement about a vendor's offerings, um, they're eligible for defamation liability. But the publishers of those, the sites who operate, um, uh, the site operators of these review sites are protected from liability by 47 U.C. 230. So they're basically categorically immune from that defamation liability. It's not their problem, it's the user's problem, but not theirs. Um, and what's happened, and I would argue this is causally relinked, although I'm only establishing correlation, is that we've seen this explosion of review sites and consumer reviews. Go back to that slide I showed you with that matrix of all these sites. There's an enormous amount of entrepreneurial activity taking place there. And there are millions of reviews being written. Amazon has millions of reviews about products and services in its database. So we're seeing an explosion of information that stands in stark contrast to the job reference market, which has basically collapsed. So why? Why are these markets different? Um, so let me offer some hypotheses. I don't have a definitive single answer for you, but here's some differences between those two reputation systems. Um, first of all, the job reference market is an unmediated reputation system. Online consumer reviews are generally a mediated system. And so maybe we'd say we just need different legal rules and we have mediated versus unmediated systems. There's a qualitative difference between the two that supports the regulatory difference. Another way we could say is that there's differences in the reviewers, the people who are supplying this information. So, for example, maybe online reviewers are just being stupid. One takeaway you might take about this is you're going to go turn off your Yelp account. You're going to go stop contributing to Amazon Consumer Reviews. Everything you say there is liability bait. The way I think about it as a blogger is when I post a blog post, every single one, I'm betting my house. If I'm wrong, plaintiffs get upset, they're going to come after my house. I live in one of the most expensive marketplace, housing markets in the world. I don't want to lose my house. I have to really believe what I say in order to stand behind it. And if I'm smart, if I'm a rational maximizer, the value of any particular blog post is not worth betting my house on. Um, another difference in the reviewers is that a lot of the online reviewers are just worthless. And, you know, they have no assets. I might have a house that somebody would want, but most online reviewers have nothing. But employers are excellent litigation targets. They are the deep pockets. And so we might say there's a structural difference in these between the review sources. One review source is an excellent uh, uh, source of um, uh, funds if litigated. Others are impossible to find. And if you find them, they've got no money. Um, another difference is in the ways in which the reviews might have an impact. Um, so, for example, a single bad job reference could be life-changing. Right? You could imagine that somebody has the dream job that they want. They get a, uh, Someone gives a bad job reference that spoils that. That job reference is fair. Gee, there's no way to correct that. The, people, the job gets filled. The employee doesn't get the job. That's going to be life-changing. It's hard for a single online review to have that degree of consequence. Not impossible, but hard. And so we might say that the reviews that we get in the job reference market are just more impactful. Um, we could also say that... Um, 
there's fewer legitimate evaluative sources when we're talking about job references. That the number of people who are qualified to give a job reference is actually quite small. Whereas with product reviews or vendor reviews, there's usually thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of customers who are equally positioned to give reviews. And so we might want to be more careful in the job reference market because of the fact that there are fewer sources of reliable information. We want to make sure that those people do a more thorough job. Um, and we might say that job performance evaluations are inherently subjective. It's really hard to know who's right and who's wrong. He said, she said. I don't know if you've any of you ever tried to deal with that. When you get a, something that smells like a problem employee, and then the, you talk to the employee about it, and they say, oh, no, that wasn't me. Who's right? Who's wrong? Who knows? It's so hard to tell. Um, product reviews could be very objective. It could be easy. Did this thing work or not? Did this thing fail or not? It could be a lot more objective. And so we might again want the job review references to be more carefully considered because they're, by their nature, inherently subjective and harder to counteract. Okay, um, let me reach some conclusions here and save a few moments of, um, for questions um, by drawing some possible lessons from this. So you can, I mentioned to you, this is a multi-year project for me, and you can see how I'm not anywhere close to being done. Here are some of the places I think I'm going. Um, first thing is that I've reached the tenor conclusion that if we have a choice, we should value mediated reputation systems over unmediated systems, that we get overall better results when reputation systems are mediated. Let me make some support for that. First of all, um, unmediated systems have high transaction costs. It's very expensive to make good matches when you have unmediated systems. So, for example, finding someone who knows the information that you want to know about and is reliable, um, a reliable source of information about that good or service is hard. Even if you're... Um, find somebody who has first-hand experience with, say, a doctor, you don't know if that person is a good evaluator of a doctor. They might have no medical knowledge by which to compare. Um, assessing their credibility, whether or not they um, are credible sources or are likely to be uh, telling the truth, it's hard. And there's very difficult, um, it's very expensive to try and police any errors that happen by word of mouth. Trying to squash errors that get introduced into our information ecosystem from these direct communications is very hard because they're so microscopic. They're each individualistic. In contrast, look at all the benefits about mediated systems. Um, first of all, they care about their own reputation. So, for example, Yelp cares about its reputation. People aren't going to go to Yelp if we think Yelp is filled with not credible reviews. Um, and I call this phenomenon the tertiary invisible hand. So remember, we've got the invisible hand swinging through our marketplace, allocating goods and services, and we have reputational information pushing that invisible hand to try and make better uh, judgments. Well, the, the reputation of the publishers of reputational information guides how they influence reputational information, which guides how people transact. So in a sense, the reputation of the reputational systems is a tertiary effect that drives how they make their judgments to try and improve the reputation information, which improves the marketplace mechanism. This is a very powerful phenomenon for most credible sites. Most credible sites want a good reputation, know that consumers will drop them uh, if they don't. We also have other examples. Some of you may be familiar with Juicy Campus, one of these teen gossip sites, um, went out of business. Um, I would look at that as actually a good thing. That might have been the reputational, um, uh, its tertiary invisible hand effect. That its own reputation was so bad, people realized that was no longer a credible site. That was filled with anonymous reviews. This is part of where I think the reputation may matter. Um, 
The media system has some incentives to verify and establish the credibility of its sources. They can publish information that tells you who people are. They can elicit that information, and they can even do, in some cases, some stuff to validate that information. So, for example, um, eBay's feedback form. You can't provide a review unless you actually transacted with the person. That helps establish the credibility of that information. Media systems can also provide incentives to produce non-public information. Remember I said up on a previous slide that we as reviewers have disincentives to providing reviews because of our defamation liability, but media systems have their business model trying to encourage people to provide reviews. Now, in opinions, we made it really clear. We did pay for play or you know, pay for content. We paid people to write opinions. But you don't have to pay people in order to get them to want to provide reviews. There's all kinds of incentive systems that people use to try and pull reviews out of consumer. Media systems will invest in doing that. And finally, uh, media systems can capture and distill the wisdom of the crowds. As you may know, there's a high beta variability with any particular review. Is this a good review or not? But if you average it out over the pool of reviewers, chances are that you get much more credible results. That the crowd is often going to be more right than any particular expert. Some of you may be familiar with the literature on that. And so media systems, by aggregating up multiple reviewers uh, and putting them into, an, into a group, can actually give you the benefit that wisdom of the crowds that you cannot get from an unmediated system when you're relying upon single-sourced information. Okay, so... If you agree with me that we should socially value mediated systems over unmediated systems, then from my perspective, the consequence is clear. We should be looking for ways to encourage mediated reputation systems to exist and to do what they do best. And therefore, things like 47 U.S.C. 230 that says websites are liable for third-party content turns out to be brilliant because what it does is it lets the reputation systems then decide how they're going to manage their own business, to decide what they're going to do in terms of distilling wisdom of the crowds and establishing credibility of their uh, reviewers and figuring out the best and optimal ways to sort and organize information. 230 also avoids what I call lopsided databases. Remember we talked about medical justice, how they would use copyright to pull down doctor reviews? Well, they're not going to pull down positive doctor reviews, are they? That'd be stupid. They're only going to take out the negative reviews. So what you have is if you don't have a website that's in the business of standing up to the bullies, they're going to take down the negative reviews and only leave up positive reviews. You get these lopsided databases. Lopsided databases, not credible. As I mentioned, it also fosters experimentation. Go back to that slide where we see all that innovation taking place among review sites. I would argue that's because 230 has said it's okay to experiment. It's okay to rip off report if you want to not take down content under any circumstance. It's also okay if Angie's List wants to charge for access to the database. It's also okay if um, uh, eBay wants to restrict um, the ability of uh, the feedback form uh, reviews only to people who have transacted. All those choices are legitimate and protected under 230. That means we can figure out which of those are the best ones and hopefully um, get to the right results accordingly. Having said that, there might be some marketplace choices that reputation systems ought to make. And here are some common attributes of successful reputation systems as I see them. First of all, that the reputation system provides some visibility, but not pure or complete visibility to the algorithm it uses to organize and sort content. That you have to have some understanding about how Yelp sorts its reviews to trust it. You may not need to know every detail, but if you don't have any insight into that, it actually becomes not credible. Obviously, any site that's pay-to-play, where placement is based on payment and that's not clearly disclosed, those aren't credible at all. 
But the translucent algorithm, something that you can see partially through, I think is also crucial to um, the marketplace working properly. Um, I'm a big fan of attributed sources. I personally find anonymous information not credible because I need to know who's saying um, information and why. So I tend to do a fair amount of investigation of information sources before I rely upon them. Not everyone is that way, but I'm personally a big fan of attributed sources that you have to be able to trace your source. And finally, we might conclude that another successful attribute is what we call the right of reply. That, uh, that a person who's being reviewed gets the right on the spot to say, I disagree and here's why. Um, it may not be good enough to say, well, you can write your own blog post over there. We may want to have it on the spot. This may be, again, all three of these things may be driven by the marketplace, but these may be common things that we expect to see by sites that we choose to trust. Um, I have a few minutes for questions. Let me turn it over to you. I'm just wondering whether you would have one or two examples of uh, mediated systems that you think exemplify best practices. Yeah, that's a good question, and I'm still working on that. Um, I will tell you that I rely heavily on things like Amazon's consumer reviews, um, but I don't rely on them indiscriminately. I use them in part to do the wisdom of the crowds. When I see something that's consistently getting a large number of positive reviews, that tends to be reliable. When I see something that's consistently getting negative reviews, I find that unreliable. I can trace any individual review, and I find the reviews are the ones I can look back and take a look at more useful. I personally don't understand how Amazon sorts and organizes its, its reviews. That's a little bit opaque to me, so I would like to know more information. I find eBay's feedback form extremely useful. It's a heavily studied system, if you haven't seen the literature on this. Uh, there's been a lot of academics who take a look at it, and it's actually been quite brilliant. But, you know, eBay made a change to it recently of some note. They said that buyers, uh, I'm sorry, that sellers can no longer leave negative feedback for buyers. And... I'm interested in that. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? We've create, eBay has deliberately created a lopsided database for when it comes to buyers. You can't slam a buyer for bad behavior. Um, but having said that, that might actually be a good thing because, as you may know, what was happening on eBay before they made that change is that sellers were saying, leave me good feedback and then I'll leave you feedback. But if you don't leave me feedback, or more likely, if you write negative things about me, I'm going to do a punitive rating. And so by changing that system, they actually may have improved it. So I rely heavily on both of those reputation systems. Those might be um, things that we can start to draw some lessons from, why those work and why some others may not work as well. Do you see any differences in the reputation systems for um, based on what kind of attribution there is? So, for example, Yelp uses a first name, last initial system. There's some that use real identity. Then there's public sites that use nickname only. Well, how do you see that playing out? You know, I don't think that it ultimately matters. From my perspective, pseudonymous content can still be useful if I can get enough of a track record for the person to believe that they're actually credible. Um, so, for example, in the opinions, we had people who would actually provide full information. They provide a name, a location. Um, there would be some other transparency they were, but they were still shill reviews. They were still either paid reviews or they were reviews that were from a um, competitor trying to game the system. Um, so that didn't curb it because those were also gameable. The more that's done to attribute, the more that you get credibility in a system, but then you also lose something for the people who are afraid to say the negative information. And so I don't think there's a single right answer to that. It might be context-specific. It might be type of information-specific. It might be that in, you know, when we're dealing with digital cameras, we don't really care about the um, uh, source of reviews as much as we do if we're dealing with job references. There might be differences in different types of information. Um, 
but you know, uh, what I don't find useful is when th- there's a pseudonym or, or no pseudonym even and nothing more beyond that. Those reviews, if those are the only review on a particular product or service, I tend to find those not useful at all. Thank you very much for coming to here. Thank you very much for watching. I appreciate your comments.